Thank you. Good evening. Yeah, so just following on from that, the news about, about Hope School, um, you can see things through from a worldly point of view, and that can look like a failure or, or a waste. Um, but in fact, or you can also see that through the eyes of faith, that people have served and worshipped God in all that they've done, and that in everything we've done as well, people have encountered uh, the family of Eastgate and have been blessed by those encounters and have encountered the kingdom of God just in what we've done as well. And it's interesting, even before that news, the the title of my sermon tonight was The Topsy-Turvy Kingdom, um, and how things can look very different from heaven's perspective to how it looks from a worldly point of view, and also that heaven's priorities are different to the world's. And so tonight I'm going to be talking um, about sacrifice and about service um, and about how those are aspects of our worship, which leads on from what Dad's been been saying. Also following on from what Tim shared just at the end of worship, that pearl of great price, that in actual fact Jesus Christ is worth anything that we ever lay down. That any sacrifice that we ever make Anything that ever seems like a loss for the sake of knowing Christ, in actual fact, we have gained infinitely in the presence of God by being adopted as his sons and daughters and being being part of an everlasting kingdom. And whatever we give up, whatever we sacrifice in this life for the sake of Christ is paid back a thousandfold, both in this life and in eternity. And so, looking at the passage... Um, which talks about the cost of following him and also um, just on how Jesus views authority. Um, First off, I'd actually like to talk about a man who gave his all for the kingdom of God. How many of you uh, would have heard of Jim Elliot or read the book Through Gates of Splendor? Good, so I'm preaching to some of the converted here. Um, Jim Elliot was quite, uh, well is now quite a famous missionary at the time. Probably not many people knew him. Uh, But he was a young man with the world at his feet. He was educated. He was intelligent. He was a charismatic speaker. He was talented. He grew up in the USA in the 1930s and 40s. He was part of a Christian family um, and part of a local church. He attended Wheaton College, um, and he was trained, and he devoted himself to studying the Bible. He had opportunity to work in Christian ministry in the USA, but actually felt called to foreign mission. And he started to look into opportunities to reach people who had no contact with the gospel. And he settled on um, uh, trying to reach people in a remote part of Ecuador um, and trying to reach numerous tribes who didn't have much contact with uh, the Western world at that time and who he knew had never encountered the gospel. Um, and one of those specific tribes was called the Orca. They were within Ecuador. He first travelled there in 90, 1952. He and a group of other men, and they spent years trying to reach out to groups that had previously never heard about Jesus and not had, well, never, not, not even much contact with the English language. Um, and they spent years trying to train themselves. Uh, to be able to communicate with the people and practical ways to be able to show God's love to them. 
Um, by late 1955, he and his team had made initial contact with a remote tribe by dropping gifts from a low-flying airplane, um, and I believe were, were shouting through a megaphone um, what words they had been able to learn in that language. Um, and they were making plans for contact face-to-face. They laid the groundwork for months, and then this led to them being able to build um, a base nearby to the village. Um, Jim Elliott and four other men um, made their base there and started to make initial contact. And it was looking like they were starting to make breakthrough, um, and they'd had some positive interactions with a few of the local people. And then on January the 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and his four companions were murdered by the people of the tribe that they had been trying to reach. That's a nice, cheerful story I've started with tonight, isn't it? Why would I tell you that? I once taught that story to a Sunday school class in my, <laughs> in, in my church in Southampton. And a young lad called Joe, he was 10 or 11 at the time, he came up and said, Dave, why, why are you telling us about people that just end up dead? And so I, it was a series that we were teaching in the Sunday school class about best Christian heroes not from the Bible, and I'd picked Jim Elliott and uh, managed to, to teach that to a Sunday school class and then followed it up a few weeks later with one, a talk on William Tyndale, the famous Bible translator, also martyred. Um, and uh, and <laughs> some state of alarm amongst uh, some of the children, but in actual fact were able to actually teach what we learn from these lives and actual fact from actually what was gained from their sacrifice. Why would I tell you Jim Elliott's story? Well, if you look at that from a worldly point of view, it sounds like a complete waste initially. He was 28 years old when he died. You know, just think of all else he could have done. You know, his whole life in front of him. This was a, a talented man. He was married at the time. And yet his wholehearted desire to serve Jesus and spread the gospel sparked an amazing response. Thousands of people started praying for the unreached tribes. And more people committed to mission work among them. This actually included Elizabeth Elliot, his widow, who went and in love shared the gospel with the tribe who had killed her husband. Elizabeth Elliot's an amazing woman. She died a few years ago. Um, she was one that wrote some of the stories about her husband and also um, wrote a lot of books herself. And it's quite incredible the love and the forgiveness that she showed. And they started to see breakthrough. And they did, in the end, see people saved in that tribe that had never encountered Jesus before. And also, Jim Elliot himself knew in advance that this wasn't a waste. Years before he even went to that tribe, he had written in his journal what is now his most famous quote. He says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Because he understood that by offering his life wholeheartedly to Jesus, he could never lose it. He knew that any sacrifice that he made could never compare with what Jesus had done for him. And he knew that his life was measured in eternity with Christ. And that what he did could make an eternal difference in the life of others. Look at Luke 9, don't need to turn to it. It says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I think just drawing the parallel, you know, with the disappointment that we've had with Hope School 
Okay, no, no one's died. Let's, 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 let's at least look at that. <laughs> We're not talking martyrdom here, but joking aside, the, this is a very significant um, loss to us. This is a big disappointment. Um, and people have put... I, well, I'm not joking when I say that people have put thousands of hours into trying to get that going. And you could look at that from a worldly point of view and think, oh, what a waste. I don't think so, actually. I know, I, know, I know God doesn't think so. God regards those hours as worship, like Dad's been saying. And also, I believe that we've laid the groundwork for an even greater breakthrough in years to come, that we will be seeing education transformed, and none of that has ever gone to waste. Anything we give, any offering of sacrifice, anything that we do as service to Christ is never, ever a failure. And we know that. So whilst we're sad about what's happened, about hope, we are also hopeful for the future because we know that God can redeem that. And in actual fact, God's plans are greater than ours. They're greater than the dreams that we have. They're greater than the resources of the Department for Education. And that in actual fact, his heart is to be a blessing in that arena. It's the topsy-turvy kingdom. Try to keep your life, you'll end up with no life at all. Give it all up for the sake of knowing Jesus, you'll gain treasure beyond your imagination. Like just to look at another example of when Jesus taught this. Can we turn to Mark 10? And that's verse 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Just picture the scene. The disciples have been with Jesus for a while now, and they've seen some, some pretty amazing things happen so far. They've seen Jesus heal the sick, feed the 5,000, raise the dead, walk on water. The disciples are convinced now that there's, there's nothing that Jesus can't do. And James and John were even there at the transfiguration, where the glory of God was revealed through Jesus in a new and dramatic way. They're convinced they're with the future king. And then along they come, approaching Jesus with a request. Will you do whatever we ask? Which is bold, isn't it? In some ways, you have to admire their boldness. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't dismiss their request out of hand. You know, they've come and said, will you do whatever we ask? Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 don't be so stupid. (laughs) Okay, which is interesting. If my dad's come to me and say, dad, will you do anything we ask? I'm telling them I'm not falling for that one. And in fact, Jesus shows a lot of wisdom here because his reply isn't to say, you know, don't be silly or who do you think you are? Because he's actually interested in their heart. 
okay, in knowing their desires, he says, what do you want me to do? Also a good parenting tip if any of your kids ever ask that. <laughs> so he says, what do you want me to do? He is wise. He wants to know what they want before he actually commits to an answer. And they say, when you're in glory, when you're ruling, can one of us sit at your right hand and one of us at your left hand? Now, to sit at the right hand of an earthly king was a place of honor, denoting either special trust, um, authority from the king, relationship with the king. The right hand was uh, the most important person after the king, and the person on the left hand was the second most important. So James and John were coming seeking positions of honor, importance, and authority. And Jesus told them that they didn't understand what they were asking for, or at least they didn't understand how honor and authority works in the kingdom of God. As Jesus told them, a cost came with this. He asks, can you drink the cup I drink? And it sounds an odd saying, it's not just talking about sharing a beverage. Um, This was a way of saying, can you share the same fate as me? Um, sharing, can you share my cup was saying, can you go through what I'm going to go through? And, you know, can you walk down the same path? Can you experience the same things? Can you experience the same suffering that I'm going to? You know, sharing the same cup as someone did have, a, did have that connotation. And he says, and well, first of all, they say yes, they can. And he says, you will experience that. And this is true. As far as we know, James was the first of the 12 apostles to be killed for his faith. As the guys, these guys came seeking a position of importance and honor and blessing, and he offered them suffering and death. <laughs> Happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Having asked to share in his glory, Jesus offers them a share in his suffering. To be like Jesus is to reign with him, It also means to die with him and to be raised with him. Because our whole identity is in him. Our whole life is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And so, in some ways, we have to ask ourselves, what is the cost? What is the cost of following Jesus? How much does it cost you to become a Christian? What's the admission price to heaven? What's... How much do you cost to get into the kingdom? What, you know, to become a son of God? How much does it cost you? And in one sense, the right answer is nothing. In actual fact, because it's free. It's by, it's by grace. Salvation is by grace. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is given freely, entirely by God. You cannot get into the kingdom of God by your own efforts, your own righteousness, your own good works. You have to rely absolutely with complete humility on the wonderful mercy and grace of our Father. So in some sense, getting in, being in the kingdom of God costs you nothing. But in some sense, it costs you absolutely everything as well. Because we are all called to lay down our lives for him. We die to our old way of life. And we put everything that we have under the lordship of Christ. How many of you? How many of you have been baptised here? Give me a brief wave if you're baptised. Good, that's good. You should be baptised. It's a good thing to do. Okay, it symbolises that, doesn't it? Very much that, in actual fact, you died. Your old self died. It was put to death completely, and then you were raised to new life with Christ. The cost of knowing Jesus 
is everything. It's your whole life. In fact, what you gain is so much more. And Jesus, he takes people's understanding of things and he flips them upside down. To gain your life, you must lose it. To have authority, you must serve. Because Christian life is one of sacrifice and service, but this is not bad news. Because in actual fact, by doing it, we receive more than we ever give up. By laying down your life, you receive eternal life. And that's not just some abstract concept that starts after you die in this life and you go to heaven. Eternal life starts the instant that you come into relationship with Jesus. Jesus says it very clearly, eternal life is knowing, knowing me, he says. So that starts the instant that you give your life to him. You're already living eternal life. And in John 10, he says, I promise you life to the full. Absolutely. You have to be willing to give up that whole life in its entirety. You have to be willing to sacrifice all of that, everything that you have, and lay that all on the altar and say, Jesus, this is all for you. My whole life is for you. And he takes that and then he gives you back eternal life, life to the full. I love the parable of the pearl of great price, which which Tim alluded to earlier. The kingdom of God is compared to a merchant who found a pearl of such great value that he sold everything he had to buy it. It's in Matthew 13. It literally cost him everything. But he considered it worthwhile for what he gained. This was something so beautiful that in actual fact, everything else just paled into insignificance compared to what he gained. And that's what we're promised. And fortunately, as I said earlier, most of us aren't going to be martyred. I I feel it's important we share some good news at this stage (laughs) as well. Um, Fortunately, if you're here, if you live in the UK, it's very unlikely that that is going to occur. It still does occur worldwide. In fact, we still recognize that. That around the world, there are people that are literally losing their lives for the sake of Jesus. But in actual fact, they are gaining eternal life. And in actual fact, they are bringing the kingdom of God wherever we go. It's important for us to constantly realize that we have given our whole lives to Jesus. Christianity is not just something that you can bolt on to your existing life. It never has been. You can't continue with your previous way of life with your previous priorities, and just stick that on the side. Yeah, I'll have a bit of Jesus. It demands our whole life. Try to keep bits of your life back, you miss out. You lose out on all that God has for you. Give it all over to him, and you just look at how much he is going to bless you, at the love that he is going to pour into your life. And sometimes we just need to constantly keep that cost we give, and in actual fact, remind ourselves we have placed our whole life under the Lordship of Christ. That's our career, our money, our dreams, our aspiration, our family, our pride, our status, everything. But you're giving it up to gain so much more. We also need to be mindful of the cost that we pay in how God uses us, as well as in our salvation. 
Because, as I said, we are saved completely freely through none of our own efforts, yet we have laid down our, our life. We also live by grace. Very important that you then don't live by your own efforts after you're saved. It goes badly if you do that. Okay? We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit rather than our own effort. Yet, actually, fact, what is needed still is an ongoing surrender of our life, a wholehearted partnership with God, where we are willing to do all that he asks. Where, in actual fact, when he speaks, we respond with utmost obedience, constantly laying down things along the way, knowing that, in fact, God's plans for you are better. That anything that you give up, in fact, he gives more. Comes back to actually how he uses you in the kingdom. Because, in actual fact, there is sacrifice needed in that. We recognize that with Hope School, but we also recognize that whenever we are called to great exploits, and we are, there is no one that plays a minor part in the kingdom of God. Every single one of us does things every day that can have eternal significance. Okay? You make a life, you help someone take one step further to the kingdom, one step further to knowing God, you will meet them in eternity. And they will be spending their eternal life giving glory to the Father and in the community of the saved. Every single thing that we do is significant. And all of it, in fact, requires sacrifice. People often look at men and women of great faith and think, I, I wish I could do that. You know, Bill Johnson, Julian Adams, Andy Clarks. Oh, I wish I could do that. And, and there are two mistakes that people tend to make when, when in fact, we look at that. The first one is to assume that you can never do similar things. Is think, is to look at it and go, well, I could never do that. You're wrong. You can. Okay? You have the same Holy Spirit. With God, all things are possible. That's not just a prom- promise for anyone with a pulpit. It's a promise for every believer. With God, all things are possible. You all have God inside of you. You're all filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no limit for you. It's the first mistake that people tend to make is to look and go, I could never do that, or God could never use me that way. Yes, he can. But then the contrasting mistake is to assume that you can do it all without sacrifice and that there is no cost to great exploits of faith. Uh, I mentioned Julian Adams earlier. He's a friend of this church, and... Sometimes he says that people have said to him, I wish that I could see what you see, hear what you hear. Julian's a prophet, if you don't know him. And he asks, are you willing to pay the price I've paid? He's upfront about that. Okay. Julian doesn't exercise his gifts out of his own human talent. He does it by faith in God. Yet the way that God uses him is a reflection of a life of sacrifice. That makes sense. Okay. And that's available to all of us. So James and John, they came asking for great rewards. And Jesus told them about great cost. And the two are linked. Okay, but we do that without fear of the cost. We do that with our hope for the reward that comes. And then the other disciples then get angry with James and John. Um, I do wonder whether they were angry because they felt that this was a wrong request. Or just angry because 
They wanted those places. <laughs> you can just imagine Peter saying to Andrew, wish I'd thought of that first. I can't believe they got in and asked him first. You know what he's like, he'll probably give them that. <laughs> and then there's John chips in, doesn't worry me, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. That probably doesn't help Peter either. And so there they all are, arguing over who gets to be the most important. You have to bear in mind, this isn't the first time they've argued about (laughs) who's the most important. Jesus already had to tell them before, um, when they're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom, and he gets a small child and says, you want to be great, you need to be like a small child. You need to be sons, daughters of God and come with a childlike faith. Um, But anyway, he, he has to... You know, sometimes they didn't always catch on quickly, which gives me hope. Um, and Jesus corrects their opinion. He comes in, they're arguing who's the most important. He says, look, well, guys, time out. You're all thinking about lording it over each other, when really you need to be thinking about how you serve one another. Because Jesus confronts their understanding of authority. Worldly authority is used to elevate those in charge. It's used to benefit the one who is using it. Yeah. Heavenly authority is used to serve. Heavenly authority is used to bless those who are under that authority. Heavenly authority typically is given rather than taken. In that, I'm talking about, in fact, our interactions with one another and how we bless the world. Um, we also have authority over the kingdom of darkness. And in there, in actual fact, there's no, we, we just take that. Okay, that, that's given to us by Jesus. All right, there's no negotiation there. You're not there to serve them. You boot them out. God has given you authority. But in actual fact, talking about how we interact with one another, heavenly authority doesn't look to lord it over people, doesn't look to be self-promoting, or to be bringing status. In actual fact, heavenly authority looks to serve and to bless those that are around. The mark of true greatness in the kingdom of God is shown by humility and service. I'll give you an example. I'm a doctor, as well as doing this. Uh, I work as a GP. How much authority do you think I have? Anyone? Lots. Thanks. The ex-GP at the back is good. (laughs) I do. Okay. In actual fact, that is a position of significant authority. Okay. Being trained and put in a position of significant responsibility. Um, But the authority I have over people is what they give me. Because they come to me. They ask my advice. I may prescribe them treatment. But it's their decision to come to me. And it's up to them whether they take my advice. I don't control whether they take the medication, prescribe them. It's up to them. So within that setting as a GP, how much authority do I have? In some sense, it's actually fact how much authority the patients have given me. It's up to them how much they want to come and make use of my service. The authority I have for them is quite significant, in actual fact, because I can help them to access the full range of treatments available on the NHS. I can treat them, I can prescribe for them, I can arrange further investigations, I can refer them on for further consultations, I can ask specialist colleagues to see them. So what is the purpose of the authority that I have there? It's there to bless people, it is to do good for them and to benefit their health. I am there to use the authority that I have to serve the patients and to benefit their health. 
Oh, yeah, and you realize, unfortunately, in the current climate, the, the range of options that have been available for me to make use of has, has diminished, actually, compared to when I first started as a GP five years ago, um, which is why we need things like heaven in healthcare, why we need the kingdom of God impacting the field of, of health in this country. Because we're dealing with a healthcare system that is unfortunately um, dealing with an ongoing lack of resources. But I represent a kingdom that has infinite resources. And that's what we need to be bringing into that environment. But despite current difficulties and financial climates, well, I'll give you an example of when my authority as a GP, I think, worked well. Uh, a patient came to see me. Um, you know, he sat down and said, how can I help? He said, I think I've got a chest infection. I said, okay, what, what symptoms are you experiencing? He said, oh, he said, oh I've had something like it before. You know, uh, if you could just give me some antibiotics, I'm sure it will clear up. That would be great. I said, okay, can you, can you tell me a bit more? And he said, well, I'm getting this pain in my chest. Said, That's what... <laughs> Pay attention. Okay, I said, tell, tell me when this pain happens. He says, it occurs whenever I'm, uh, whenever I'm working out or lifting things or exercising or walking quickly. I'm like, right. I said, do you have a cough? He said, no. I said, do you have a temperature? No. This doesn't sound like a chest infection. <laughs> I said, sir, this, uh, I asked a few more questions and examined him. I said, sir, this, this isn't a chest infection. I, I'm, I'm fairly sure that you're describing angina and, and this could be quite serious. Um, and he really wasn't convinced first off, in actual fact. Um, and we talked through it, and I explained the thinking and, and why his symptoms set a certain pattern. And it's interesting because all he wanted was antibiotics, um, and he thought that would sort the problem out. Um, but I was fairly convinced otherwise. And in the end, he said, All right, you're the doc, I'll do what you advise. So at that point, he has placed himself under my authority, voluntarily, okay, because he trusts me and my judgment at that point. I then arrange him to have a quick further few investigations and refer him into the cardiology clinic. Um, and a week later, he's discharged, having just had his coronary arteries stented um, with fairly significant ischemic heart disease. And... Within that, as I say, he placed himself under my authority. How did I use that authority? Not to lord it over him or to rubbish his opinions about the, the chest infection side of things. In actual fact, to point out what I think I can do for you and the blessing that I can bring and in actual fact the benefit that I can um, give to his life. And in actual fact, so that is an example, I think, and in actual fact the authority that I have I was able to access all of the resources, the rapid access chest pain clinic, the ECGs, the blood tests, all of those come through me um, enabling him to access those. Within our healthcare system, you can't just walk in and have those done yourself. You need a GP to refer you on for that. That's part of our role. So the authority that I had and I used, in actual fact, enabled him to access greater resources and greater blessing. And in actual fact, there's a parallel there the authority that we have enables other people to access heaven's resources and heaven's blessing. That's how it works. It's interesting, I just point out another point. Serving him in that capacity um, didn't actually involve doing what he initially wanted. I, I could have just given him the antibiotics that he'd asked for, and he would have gone away thinking, oh, what a good GP. 
kind man, he's listened and he's given me what I wanted. And then he would have died. Uh, and that wouldn't have been good. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know if you need to point that out. Um, so it's interesting that uh, as a leader, in whatever form of leadership role that you have, uh, you have responsibility towards people and in actual fact, to use that in a godly manner, you need to be using that in a way that builds them up, that serves them and blesses them, but in actual fact doesn't always involve doing everything that is demanded of you. Okay, just to make that clear. We use the authority we are given to bless others and to serve them. And the more responsibility you are given, the more important it is to remember that. The more significant your position of influence or leadership, the greater responsibility you have towards those around you. Or to quote Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Watch the film. Because Jesus Christ came to serve. He gives himself as the ultimate example. He says clearly in verse 45... Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. How much authority do you think Jesus had? Good, thank you. That's an easy question. Jesus had all authority. Good, glad you're with me. How did he use it? He used it to serve. And it did not in any way diminish his identity or his achievements. It enhanced them. In case anyone is thinking as well, I'm not a servant, I'm a son. Do you think Jesus had any insecurity in his identity? Jesus knew that he was royal, that he was divine, and he combined this with being a servant. Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the greatest being there has ever been in history, the greatest being there ever will be. All honor, all worship, all power, and on a go to him. And he came to lay down his life and to serve. That's our example. Each of us, if you're a Christian, you are a, a child of the king. You are given utmost dignity. God has lifted you up and seated you with Christ. He has given you great power. He has seated the Holy Spirit within you. You have the power of God living inside you. You have open communication with the God who made the universe. You have direct relationship with the Heavenly Father. You are given blessing and an elevated status beyond anything else in creation as sons and daughters of the King. And in that, we are to serve. Because Jesus is not against greatness. He knew he was great. And he acknowledged the idea, the, the, the desire for humans to be great. He doesn't say that's wrong. He wants you to be great. It just shows that the way that this is demonstrated in the kingdom goes against worldly understanding. He says, if you want to be great, learn to serve. He doesn't say you shouldn't be great. All right? Very important. Okay? You are great, each of you. Okay? He says, if you want to learn to be great, learn to serve. Just to quote David Hewitt in his commentary on Mark. He says, Jesus turns the value system of the world totally upside down. The life of discipleship is to be marked with humility and service. And the supreme example of this is Jesus himself, who is about to give his life for them. And that's the topsy-turvy kingdom. If you want to live life to the full, 
you have to give up your life. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to serve. And the blessings that you will receive will outweigh anything that you ever give up. And by serving people, the power that you will bring into that circumstance goes beyond anything that you can imagine. When you do this, you gain the greatest reward there is. You get life with Jesus. You get eternal life. You get to be part of his kingdom, and he will use you powerfully. Know the authority that he gives you and use it to be a blessing. Any authority we are ever given is for the increase of his kingdom, the blessing of his people, and for the blessing of his world. I think uh, there's a, a couple of applications I um, just want to, I do want to, to bring that. I think there's two things that we're called to do. One, uh, I think that um, I'd like us just to respond in this. One is, in fact, we are called to complete surrender. And in fact, that's a daily thing. We've done that when we were saved, but every single day that we live, in actual fact, we say, God, I give this day to you. I give my whole life to you. And in actual fact, just watch the blessing that flows from that. Okay? So we're going to respond in that way in a moment. Also, I feel that God is actually looking to pour out grace or authority on us so that we can be a blessing and so that we can serve our families, our church, and our communities, and that we can bring the authority of heaven, which brings the goodness of God into all situations. Would you stand with me? Anthony, can you get the song ready? Is that a moment? It's a song just ranked collective. This is just a song called All That I Am. Um, just going to let this song play for a moment. Just, even if you don't know the words, just respond in your heart. Dedicate once again just your life to God. Areas where you just want to say, God, I just want to surrender this completely to you. Know that anything that you lay down, he will just pick you up and give you so much more. And also trust that he is giving you greater authority to be a blessing in this world. And after that, a few of us will make ourselves available. Um, anyone that wants prayer for anything in particular will do that. We're just going to worship. We're going to come in complete surrender to our wonderful king.